Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. What famous American statesman wrote a pamphlet on passing gas? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. I'm Joe Schwartz. When I don't chat with you here on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from reality. And as you can imagine, these days, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of that separating needed, not only in science, but in the political arena as well. But we can stick to science uh, right here. Okay, the vaccine business, not much has happened this past week, uh, although we had some information from AstraZeneca which was kind of optimistic uh, with the suggestion that the vaccine not only prevents infection, but that it can also prevent transmission. And that, of course, is the real key. That's what we really need to to know, because we need to somehow ensure that uh, transmission is cut down. We're constantly striving, of course, towards this uh, herd immunity, whereby enough people uh, themselves have been infected so that they will develop uh, antibodies. But of course, the hope is that not only will they develop antibodies, but they will not be able to pass the virus on to to others. But this we don't know for sure yet. But uh, the um, AstraZeneca uh, released its uh, study about this, and it looks uh, uh, pretty good. Looks pretty good. Uh, Other than that, not much has happened here in the... uh, world of vaccination, except that we're not getting as many in Canada as we thought we would be getting. So it is still a waiting game. Rumpelstiltskin. Many of you have uh, read that story or have read it to your kids. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin was the tricky little imp who was able to weave straw into gold. That, of course, was described by the Grimm brothers. And they published the story way back in 1812. Is it possible that this story was somehow stimulated by a real-life crafty character who claimed to have accomplished the alchemical quest of turning ordinary materials into gold? You know what? There is a possible connection here, and therein lies a fascinating story. Around the year 1700, Young Johann Friedrich Böttger was apprenticed to a Berlin apothecary. And this was at a time when the search for medicines, which of course is what apothecaries were all about, that was intermingled with the pursuit of the philosopher's stone, the legendary mineral that when combined with base metals would produce gold. And although now we look back on alchemy as sort of a, a, a pursuit that was scientifically unrealistic. Of course, in those days before they knew very much about chemistry, uh, it didn't seem so impossible that substances could be transformed from one to the other. And even famous scientists like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle searched for the magic formula. But of course, they came up empty. Butger, however, was convinced that he would find the secret 
if he could just raise enough money to fund the work. As he was quite adept at conjuring tricks, he managed to convince onlookers that he had already discovered the secret of transmutation by using sleight of hand to substitute a piece of gold for his raw material. Well, that was pretty impressive. And of course, that is a, a magic trick that uh, many people still perform today. Uh, well, basically, you know, one of one of the, the uh, uh, usual gimmicks in, in magic is, is that transformation of one material into, into another. Anyway, uh, stories of Butker's exploits reached the ears of Augustus the Strong, who was ruler of Saxony and king of Poland at that time. He was called Augustus the Strong because, apparently, he was really strong. The story is that he could actually break a horseshoe with his hands. Anyway, Augustus had a hunger for gold, as many rulers at the time did. And uh, when he heard of uh, Budger, he had him arrested and he had him locked up with an array of books and uh, all sorts of alchemical apparatus, and he tasked him with producing gold. Budger tried and tried for years, and of course he failed. And then with the threat of execution hanging over him, he came up with a scheme that he thought could save his neck. He admitted that his search for the Philosopher's Stone had been futile, but he claimed that in the process he had discovered another elusive secret, that of making white gold as porcelain was called in those days. Well, this intrigued Augustus, who had become infatuated with the substance that originated in China and had defied European efforts at reproducing it. He said he would give Butger a short time to perfect his process, and if he did, his life would be spared. But he would be put under the supervision of Ehrenfried Walter I Tichenhaus, who had worked with Newton, Boyle, and Christian Huygens, the most famous scientists of the era, because he thought, of course, that Butger needed some kind of uh, supervision. The association of Tissenhaus turned out to be a lucky one for Butger, since Tissenhaus himself had been captivated by the prospect of making porcelain. This glassy material, unlike European pottery, was white. It was translucent and non-porous. It had been introduced to Europe by Marco Polo, who had discovered it on his travels in the Orient. And the origins of porcelain taste back to China and the Tang dynasty somewhere around the 8th century. Although porcelain, its name deriving from the Italian porcelana for a type of sea snail with a smooth and shiny shell, defied European efforts at production, it was obvious that, like any pottery, it was made by heating clay. But what sort of clay? And what sort of heat? To carry out his own experiments, Tischenhaus had designed a series of lenses that could produce extremely high temperatures by focusing sunlight. When Budger had carried out his alchemical experiments, he had been using special clay-fired crucibles and had noted that the crucibles themselves turned whitish during his experiments. Indeed, it was likely that this observation gave him the idea that he may be able to make porcelain, which of course was white. Together with Tissenhaus, 
they now began to try heating different kinds of clay to high temperatures and adding different substances to promote melting. These are called fluxes. Eventually, they hit upon a type of clay called kaolinite, named after the region of China where it was originally found, kaoling. And they mixed it with calcium sulfate, that's gypsum, acting as a flux. At first, the material produced was reddish due to iron impurities, and these would eventually become famous as Butger stoneware. Further experiments with heating kaolinite mixed with quartz and a potassium aluminum silicate mineral known as feldspar, that was the flux, finally resulted in white porcelain. Augustus was thrilled and set up a factory at Meissen to produce the first European porcelain that was comparable to that imported from China. And to this day, Meissen porcelain is very famous and many people collect it. As far as uh, our unfortunate Butger goes, he was let free because he had produced porcelain, but he died at a very young age, probably because of all the toxins that he had been working with as he was making porcelain. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and hopefully come back with your answer to the question about which American statesman wrote a pamphlet on passing gas. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I was watching uh, Marketplace last night, which is an excellent uh, CBC program, and they were investigating uh, air filters. And of course, these days, uh, air filters are flying off the shelves because people are worried about the coronavirus in in the air. First of all, let me just uh, preface my remarks here by saying that there is no study that I know of which has shown that using these air filters reduces the risk of infection. In theory, I think that is possible because they do filter out particles and uh, droplets in the air, which can harbor the virus. So, yeah, it is uh, it is possible. Uh, but we would like to see some sort of evidence, some sort of study which has shown that in, in rooms where air filters are used, there actually is reduced risk of, uh, of transmission. And uh, this is not such hard data to, to come by because there are some schools which have uh, instituted these air filters. And uh, I think uh, we should be able to find data on whether or not uh, there's less infection in those, uh, those places. Anyway, Marketplace looked at a number of, uh, of these filters and uh, found that there really wasn't a relationship between price and efficacy. Uh, indeed, some of the very expensive ones did not do uh, a very good job. Uh, which was kind of uh, surprising. Uh, But uh, Dyson, which is a very, very expensive one, and uh, I know that they produce excellent vacuum cleaners, uh, but they didn't do very well in this test. What I found really interesting, though, was a homemade device that uh, Marketplace featured where they bought a large fan, just an ordinary fan that, you know, we're accustomed to using in the summer, like a, a box fan, I don't know, about two, two foot square. And they also bought a filter, which is available in hardware stores, a kind of filter that you put into furnaces. And you can actually cut it to size. It's sort of a flexible thing. You can cut it to size so that you cover the total area of the, uh, of the fan. 
and then used duct tape to seal this filter around the fan. And they found that this worked very well because of course the, the fan will push the air through the filter, which then has the chance of removing whatever is present in the air. The trouble with some of the filters that they, they tested, the commercial ones, was that they did not really circulate the air through them properly. It doesn't uh, help you to know anything about the effectiveness of the filter material unless you also know how much air is passing through that material. So I thought that this was a pretty clever scheme that they came up with, putting this uh, uh, filter that you can readily buy onto, onto a fan. But as I said, uh, I would like to see some information about whether or not using any kind of air filter really uh, makes uh, an impact. Okay, we're still looking for the answer to my question about the American statesman who wrote a pamphlet about passing gas. If you know that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. And incidentally, you can also text uh, information at uh, 514-800. And uh, some, uh, some of you have uh, indeed uh, texted. And there's uh, a question here about bottled water, whether or not it is safe to drink after the expiration date. Yes, I think so. Uh, there's no reason to think that water really uh, expires. The question is whether or not after that period of time, there will be anything that leaches into the, into the water from the plastic. These plastic water bottles, uh, the ones that you buy with water already uh, in them are made from polyester and uh, nothing leaches out uh, from that. Uh, it's, it's irrelevant. So I, I think as long as the bottle is sealed, Yes, you can keep it much longer than the expiration date. There's also the question about the refillable bottles. Now, some of those uh, are made with uh, a type of uh, plastic called a polycarbonate. And polycarbonate has been questioned because it is made with bisphenol A. Now, bisphenol A is the monomer uh, that is used in making the polymer. So the final product actually doesn't have any uh, bisphenol A except for trace residues from the manufacturing process. There are concerns about bisphenol A because it is one of these compounds that has hormone-like properties, and it has been termed an endocrine disruptor. Uh, of course, uh, everything in toxicology depends on dosage, and I think that the amounts that uh, someone is exposed to uh, the trace amounts that may leach out from, uh, say, these water bottles, I, I don't think play a, a role in, in health. Uh, there's another issue, though, with bisphenol A with uh, cash receipts. And, you know, these are the, the printed receipts that you get out of uh, cash registers these days, and you're always handed these when, when you, you, are, you are shopping. The ink that is used uh, there is made with bisphenol A, and uh, some of that can indeed transfer to, to the hand. Again, I don't think that this is an issue for the customer who occasionally handles these receipts before getting rid of them. But it may be a concern for um, people who work with cash registers uh, day in, day out. Uh, that is the, the salespeople uh, or the people in the supermarket at the cash register. These days, of course, they wear gloves anyway because of the COVID issue. But I think for these people, it is a good idea. If you're going to be handling cash receipts all day, uh, I think it is a good idea to wear gloves for many reasons. One of them being reducing the exposure to, uh, uh, to bisphenol A. 
much has been written, of course, about bisphenol A uh, in, in the past, and uh, much will be written in the future. But uh, I like to point out that we are exposed to thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals every day. Uh, most of which, of course, are naturally occurring because our food obviously is made up of chemicals. You just uh, sniff a cup of coffee and you're sniffing uh, a thousand different compounds. When you have a meal, you're ingesting probably hundreds of thousands of, of different compounds. And then, of course, there are all the industrial materials to which we are exposed. Uh, the toothpaste that we use, the cleaning agents, the fumes of which we inhale, the perfumes that, that uh, we use. Uh, we use the the shaving products. I mean, the whole collage of, of substances. So we are exposed to, to hundreds of thousands of different chemicals every day. And most of these, if they were examined with the same kind of fervor as bisphenol A has been <laughs> examined in laboratory studies and giving large doses to, to test animals, most of these would yield some kind of worrisome result. So I think it's a uh, a mistake to focus in on any single compound among the thousands and thousands of thousands of ones to which we are exposed. And uh, indeed, there are many natural endocrine disruptors out there. Anytime that you eat flaxseed or you eat soybeans uh, or many cruciferous vegetables, they will have compounds in them that in the laboratory can be shown to have hormone-like uh, properties. And uh, I think it is, you know, easy to kind of uh, lead people astray by just focusing on single compounds like this and animal studies in which animals have uh, been fed gigantic doses of these compounds and scare people. Uh, there certainly are substances out there that uh, we need to worry about, for sure. They mostly are in the microbiological realm, as we well know, <laughs> the bacteria and, and, and the uh, the viruses. Uh, but uh, bisphenol A, uh, I think in the doses to which we are exposed for the average person, I think is uh, is not an issue. I've written quite a bit about this. And uh, I'll remind you that you can find a lot of information, such as what I'm talking about here, on our McGill website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. And we do have a search feature there. And uh, if you just uh, are interested in something like bisphenol A, abbreviated as BPA, you can put that into the search bar and you will find uh, whatever uh, we may have written uh, on that. You will also be able to sign up there for our free weekly newsletter, which features many of the uh, sort of toxic issues that uh, I've discussed here. Anyway, we have to take a break. We're going to check the... Uh, CTV News, and after that, we will be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcinate, soybean oil, butterfat, caramel center, all of that. Okay, I think we have Anna on the line with a possible answer to our question. Hi, Anna. Hi. Hi. Uh, I think it's uh, Benjamin Franklin. You're absolutely right. It is Benjamin Franklin. 
And uh, Franklin believed that various academic societies in Europe were increasingly pretentious and concerned with the impractical. Yes. Uh, revealing his body and scurrilous side, Franklin responded with an essay suggesting that research and practical reasoning be undertaken into methods of improving the odor of human flatulence. So, of, of course, this was uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a sarcastic uh, essay. And it goes on to discuss the way different foods affect the odor of flatulence. And uh, he proposes various scientific uh, explanations uh, for what happens when gas is passed. And uh, he also suggests that scientists work to develop a drug, quote, wholesome and not disagreeable, which can be mixed with common foods or sauces with the effect of rendering flatulence not only inoffensive, but agreeable as perfumes. The essay ends with a pun saying that compared to the practical applications of the discussion, other sciences are scarcely worth a F-A-R-T hyphen H-A-I-N-G. Uh, farthing, of course, was a type of, of money uh, back in those days. So you're quite right. It was indeed Benjamin Franklin uh, who was... Just amazing, not as a politician, but of course also as an inventor, uh, bifocal lenses for glasses uh, were his idea, the Franklin stove. And then, of course, there's the classic story of flying a kite in a storm to see whether or not lightning was really electricity. Uh, it's questionable whether he did the experiment the way that it is usually described, but there's absolutely no doubt that he was very much interested in uh, in uh, lightning and he was very much interested in electricity so it it could have uh, happened you know i get uh, messages of course sent to me uh, all the time by email text messages uh, sometimes phone calls all sorts of things and especially via facebook uh, virtually no day goes by when i don't get a video that's forwarded to me and it is always accompanied by a question is this true? Uh, almost always the answer is no, uh, because these are these, you know, usually silly uh, videos that uh, get passed to me uh, either by some, you know, right-wing uh, politician uh, talking about nonsense or, or some some crazy remedy for uh, for cancer. Anyway, uh, sometimes though, you know, I, I get a video forwarded to me with. Uh, uh, frequency. And then I know that it is really making the rounds and that it is worth paying attention to. Well, this past week, uh, I got many, many people forwarding me a video by uh, an American orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Lee Merritt. And uh, it was a interesting video. I quickly surmised that basically it was dripping with pseudoscience. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know Dr. Merritt. Uh, she, uh, you know, may be a very fine orthopedic surgeon. That that's possible. But uh, uh, as far as uh, talking about COVID nineteen, which is what she was talking about in this video, I have a lot of questions there. Uh, my suspicion was aroused almost uh, immediately when I discovered that she's a member of America's Frontline Doctors. And uh, I've, uh, I think I've talked to you guys about this uh, before. This is a handful of conspiracy-minded physicians, and uh, they 
sort of uh, made a name for themselves a few weeks ago when they stood in front of the Supreme Court, all dressed in white lab coats, and they got the press to to cover uh, this uh, little press conference that they they had. And it was headed by uh, someone called Dr. Stella Emanuel at the press conference. She was on the speakers. And uh, this is a lady who alleges that alien DNA is being used in medical treatments and that researchers are working on a vaccine to prevent people from becoming religious. Uh, she also believes in a conspiracy theory. Uh, she say, thinks that the Illuminati are out to destroy the world with abortion and gay marriage and, uh, believe it or not, with children's toys. I don't know what that's all about. As far as gynecological diseases go, they can be caused by having sex with witches and demons. Uh, this, mercifully, only happens in dreams. All right. Uh, also, at this press conference was the founder of America's Frontline Doctors, Dr. Simone Gold. And she uh, got some fame uh, last week when she was arrested for taking part in the January attack on the Capitol. Uh, she has kind of a sordid history of attacking Dr. Fauci. Uh, and uh, she claims that COVID-19 vaccines are experimental biological agents. She warns people not to be coerced into taking them. Lockdowns, she maintains, have mental health effects that are more harmful than those caused by the virus, uh, which, according to her, are minimal. And she trots out the usual trope about 99% of infections by the virus being harmless. This is nonsense. While it is true that most infected people experience mild or moderate symptoms, uh, 10 to 15% go on to have serious disease and 5% become critically ill. And uh, in some cases... Even when people recover, symptoms can linger for months, maybe even years. And then, of course, we have the over 450,000 people who have already died in the U.S. from this uh, disease. Uh, in any case, uh, these, uh, uh, these doctors, uh, who have really no expertise in uh, any relevant area of infectious disease or epidemiology, a couple of them are ophthalmologists, uh, uh, anyway, anyway, uh, what they claimed in this press conference was there were simple, effective treatments available, so you don't need a vaccine. Well, it was at that point that the snake in the grass, namely hydroxychloroquine, reared its head. Uh, and this was the medication that they claimed was the answer to our, our problem. Now, it is true that early on in COVID-19, there was some uh, seductive uh, uh, study that showed that hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was an anti-malarial treatment, uh, might have some, uh, some effect. And uh, unfortunately, when better designed studies were carried out, it turned out that it just wasn't the case. It wasn't dismissed because scientists just wanted to dismiss it for no reason. It was dismissed because the evidence wasn't there. Uh, but these America's frontline doctors maintain that this is a conspiracy by Big Pharma. They want to hide hydroxychloroquine because this cheap drug would undermine potential profits from vaccines. But who do you think makes hydroxychloroquine? Of course, it's pharmaceutical companies. So there's plenty of profit to be had there as well if this turned out to be a treatment for the millions of people who are affected by COVID-19. Uh, then the, the convoluted story goes on to say that uh, uh, vaccines have not been properly tested and they mess with our DNA, which is not, not the case at all. 
so they scare people away from from the vaccines and from from uh, other treatments that uh, actually may be uh, may be effective. So uh, uh, Dr. Lee Merritt is one of these uh, America's frontline doctors. And she has produced this uh, this video and uh, even talks about two factories that manufactured ingredients for hydroxychloroquine uh, mysteriously blowing up, suggesting that Big Pharma had you know something to uh, do with that. Uh, this this is also nonsense. The story is that these factories were producing magnesium stearate, which they say is a key component in hydroxychloroquine. It is not a key component. It's an inactive ingredient that's used in many pills as an internal lubricant to prevent the active ingredient from plunk, uh, clumping together uh, during manufacture. And the Mexican factory that was cited doesn't even produce magnesium stearate. And neither does the other company in Madison, Illinois. And the plants didn't blow up. There were fires there that were totally unrelated to, to, to anything to do with magnesium uh, stearate. So anyway, Dr. Merritt buys into all of these conspiracy theories. This is what you see in her, her video. Uh, but she does get one thing right. She does talk about low blood levels of vitamin D being a risk factor for COVID-19 and correctly suggests that supplementals may be useful, especially in northern climates where our sun exposure in the winter may be minimal. But the rest of this garbled video, uh, I think, uh, has no scientific basis uh, whatsoever, and they produce no evidence for, for the claims. So that's my uh, uh, take on this video that is making the rounds uh, put out by an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Lee Merritt. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. some uh, clever notes coming in by text. Uh, Nick has an idea of, of how children's toys may be connected to the video that I mentioned where, where uh, uh, Stella Emanuel, this, this doctor, suggests that children's toys are nefariously being used. So uh, Nick suggests that maybe they're being used to attract children by the cannibalistic Democrat pedophiles. Maybe that's it. And uh, Dr. Jerry Riley, who we've spoken to, a, a dentist here in Montreal, uh, wonders how these front-like docs uh, can believe in the silliness that, that uh, they spout and whether or not any of them have ever worked in a COVID or ER unit. Uh, interestingly enough, the founder of, uh, of this uh, movement who was arrested, as I said, for being involved with the January 6th attack on, on the Capitol, uh, is an ER doctor. It just goes to show you that that education is is, is just not a vaccine a, against uh, beliefs in, in nonsense. And there are some, you know, very highly educated people who, who buy into the uh, the unbelievable. It really is mystifying. 
Uh, someone else wants to know whether or not taking 2,000 uh, internal units of uh, vitamin D is better than taking 1,000. Hard to say. What we know about vitamin D is that people who have low blood levels, and that can only be determined by a blood test, are at greater risk for contracting infections, including uh, uh, COVID-19. But if you have uh, adequate levels, it doesn't help to have any extra. So without knowing what your blood level is, and that can only be done with a, with a blood test, it's, it's you know hard to say whether or not you should be taking supplements. But certainly uh, there's no risk in taking even 2,000 units of vitamin D uh, a day, although 1,000 is probably adequate. There have been a, a couple of trials using extremely high doses of vitamin D as a treatment for uh, COVID-19. Uh, up to 200,000 units of vitamin D. Uh, unfortunately, it really hasn't worked as a treatment. But uh, prophylaxis is a different story. I think, you know, there's enough evidence to suggest that we should make sure that we have enough vitamin D. And here in our climate, in the winter, because of the angle of the sun, we don't get enough vitamin D. Now, <laughs> remember that vitamin D is not found in sunshine. Sunshine is nothing but energy, radiation. But that energy causes the formation of vitamin D in the skin from compounds that are already present in the skin, which, of course, emanate from the, uh, from the diet. Someone else wants to know whether or not crystal rock deodorant made from uh, ammonium alum is as safe as from potassium alum. <clears throat> alum is aluminum sulfate. And what it does is it uh, closes pores of the skin. That's how it prevents uh, sweating. Uh, that's uh, uh, quite that really should be described as an antiperspirant, not as a deodorant. Deodorants are substances that uh, prevent smell, uh, mostly by, by uh, uh, limiting the growth of bacteria on the skin. And the bacteria feed on oils in the skin to produce smelly compounds like, like butyric acid, propanoic acid. Uh, you can limit that by using a, a deodorant. Deodorants will also often have just a masking fragrance. Antiperspirants are different. Uh, these actually uh, work physiologically. They close the pores of the skin, and uh, aluminum sulfate does that uh, very well. This is also the same stuff that you find in, in styptic pencils to stop uh, bleeding. There is no risk in, in using these, and uh, there have been stories uh, spread around about antiperspirants causing breast cancer uh, because of the aluminum uh, or in some cases because of the preservatives that are used in some of those uh, uh, products. Uh, but none of this has been scientifically uh, verified. So uh, antiperspirants based on alum are, are fine. Now, these rocks that you buy in, in health food stores are naturally occurring crystals, either of ammonium uh, alum or potassium alum. And they do exactly the same thing as the... Uh, commercial products that are used as sprays. So if someone is worried about using the commercial spray, they should be just as concerned about using these crystals that you rub on the skin because the uh, chemical ingredients are uh, exactly the same. And again, some of the other stories about the uh, antiperspirants uh, containing uh, parabens, which is a type of preservative uh, linked to breast cancer, none of those have been verified in, in proper studies. So I, I think this is, again, an overblown uh, claim. 
Let me uh, finish off here today by talking a little bit about instant coffee, because I get so many questions about that. Uh, of course, no one will challenge the fact that the flavor is not the same as uh, brewed coffee or uh, espresso, but it's very convenient. You don't have to mess around with grinders or coffee machines. Uh, you don't have to get rid of the grinds. Just add hot water and drink it. So the question is, what exactly are you buying when you're buying instant coffee? And for this, we go back to 1906 and the mountains of Guatemala. It was there that an American engineer, George Constant Louis Washington, brewed a regular pot of coffee. He must have not been paying much attention because the pot boiled over, spewing coffee all over the place. By the time that Washington remembered the pot, the boiled over coffee had dried around the spout into a powdery brown residue. On a whim, Washington tasted the powder and was pleasantly surprised and was really tickled when he added the powder to some hot water and found it dissolved to produce an acceptable cup of coffee. Instant coffee was born. Washington, of course, had not set out to invent instant coffee, but others before him had tackled the problem. The general idea was to evaporate the water from brute coffee and attempt to reconstitute the residue into an acceptable beverage by adding water. The results were terrible. The reconstituted coffee had a burnt taste. That's because these attempts were made at sea level, where the boiling point of water is, of course, 100 degrees, and heating coffee at that temperature produces a variety of bitter compounds. Washington's luck was that the mountains in Guatemala are high and that the boiling point of water decreases with altitude. Why? Because for water to evaporate, its component molecules have to break free from each other and escape to form a gas. Air above the water exerts a pressure which hinders the evaporation. But air pressure is lower at higher altitudes, therefore the water molecules escape the liquid more readily, meaning that the boiling point is reduced. That, of course, is why it takes much longer time to make a hard-boiled egg on top of Mount Everest than at sea level. Washington's coffee pot boiled over at about 85 degrees, and at that temperature, far fewer bitter compounds are produced. Being an engineer, Washington figured out what had happened and opened up the George Washington Coffee Refining Company in Brooklyn in 1909. Here he produced the first batches of commercial instant coffee by, quote, low temperature boiling under reduced pressure. American soldiers during the First World War welcomed instant coffee in their battle rations. Today, instant coffee production has been refined. But the basic idea is still to evaporate the water at low temperatures. This can be done by heating the coffee under a vacuum or by squirting the coffee under pressure through tiny holes to produce a fine spray, which dries almost instantly as it meets a blast of hot air. There's also the freeze-drying method wherein the coffee is frozen and then placed in a vacuum chamber. The water is pumped off, going directly from the solid phase into the gaseous one. This probably delivers the best flavor. And that is how you make instant coffee. Maybe now that you know the science behind it, you will enjoy it a little bit more. That is it. We have run smack out of time. Once again, the hour has flown by. But fret not, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. And in the meantime, remember to check out our website, at mcgill.ca slash OSS and sign up for a weekly free newsletter, which is easy to do when you access the website. That's it. 
I'll be back with you next week. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.